Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Today, many observers on both sides of the aisle think that slowing down growth and innovation would be fine. Life today is pretty comfortable, so why do we need to keep on innovating when that can only disrupt people's lives? My guest today is Professor Arthur Diamond, and he argues that this view is short-sighted. Innovative dynamism, as he calls it, has made us much richer, healthier, and overall better off in the long run, and it will continue to do so as long as we don't make the mistake of accepting stagnation for the sake of stability. Arthur is a professor of economics at the University of Nebraska, Omaha, and he's a senior fellow for the American Institute of Economic Research. He's the author of Openness to Creative Destruction, Sustaining Innovative Dynamism, released last year. Arthur, welcome to the podcast. Well, I'm happy to be here with you. Now, I have a bad habit of telling authors what the title of their book should be. And I'll say, well, you've titled it this, but maybe shouldn't it be that? But you maybe have jumped the gun on me and I've already done it. Because even though the book is called Openness to Creative Destruction, you're not a terribly big fan of that phrase. So why don't you tell me what that phrase is and why you're not a big fan of it? Well, creative destruction was a phrase that Joseph Schumpeter is well known for. And it was his view of the way that innovation occurs in societies. And it was part of his general account that innovation is what results in human betterment, and especially for betterment for the least well-off. And it's a phrase that has caught the attention of a lot of people since he first wrote it down. And I, I think that's because it's a paradoxical phrase. It's got the creative positive part, first word, and the, the destructive part on the second, uh, the second word. And I think it does capture an element of what is true about the process of innovation. That is that there are some costs. Uh, but I think it overemphasizes the costs. Uh, Deirdre McCloskey, uh, you, she taught me a little bit about how to write. And one of the things she emphasized is what you put at the end is what's emphasized the most. So I've kind of, I've always been conflicted, as you say, about whether I should use this phrase or not, because what it emphasizes is the destruction part. And what I want to emphasize is the creation part. And I became more conflicted as time went on with this big project, this project that went on for many years, because one of the main lessons I think I learned is I always thought there was a balance uh, between the creation and the destruction, but I thought the creation part was what dominated. Over time, I felt that even more strongly. I felt that the destruction part was much smaller than what I had originally thought. I think that was one of my own main self-discoveries in the process of doing this research. So I had a different title for a while. Um, I used the phrase innovative dynamism, which I think is a more positive way to describe the process than creative destruction. But I was convinced by the editor and by an entrepreneur who read my book that if I'm going to communicate effectively what my book is about, I use, need to use the phrase that most people will recognize, which is the creative destruction phrase. Now, to me, it's not, it's not just that because the last word tends to be emphasized. People think destruction. To me, uh, the problem is also that it, it seems like it creates a, a, zero, it's a zero-sum formula, creative destruction, that you have, this, you have some creation. And you have destruction, and they're kind of, and at the end of the day, they all kind of net out 
and we haven't made any real progress because things are being created while things are being destroyed. But in the end, we haven't made any progress. Where I think innovative dynamism suggests uh, a positive sum game that we're moving forward, that we're progressing. I, I certainly agree with that. Uh, maybe I have heard this phrase, grave destruction. I know I've heard it so many decades that for me, what immediately comes to mind are the kinds of examples that Joseph Schumpeter would have been would have given, you know, like railroads replacing wagons and cars replacing railroads and uh, television replacing radio. And when you start thinking of and those smartphones kinds of replacing everything and smartphones replacing, <laughs> replacing like, everything. everything on my desk. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so if you have those kind of uh, examples that immediately come to your mind when you hear the phrase, then you're not thinking zero sum game because you're thinking the new is in each of those examples better than the old. So we're moving forward. For me, what came to mind, probably because I had Schumpeter in mind for so long, was that there are some costs and they're not trivial costs sometimes to the people who are embedded either because of their jobs or their investments in the old technologies that are getting replaced. And part of what I argue in, in some of the chapters of the book is there are those costs, but they're smaller because uh, people who have jobs in the old sector can often transition seamlessly to the new one. Uh, if you take the car example, the people who are making wheels for the cars were making had previously been making pretty similar wheels for the wagons. So the people who were the accountants for the wagon company could still be accountants for the car company. We sometimes in our mind overemphasize the costs and that's one of the lessons that I try to express. But I never thought of it as being a zero sum game even when I used the phrase creative destruction. But I do agree that that's a strength if I'd stuck with a, the title that I was at one point pushing for the innovative dynamism has no suggestion of the zero sum which might have been made it a stronger title. I, I may and throughout our chat, I may use the terms interchangeably. I may emphasize one or the other. Who knows? Uh, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> now, you, now you write that creative destruction really flourished between about 1830 and 1930, a period where we had the Industrial Revolution really kick in. We had big changes in people's living standards. But before we get to that period, what about the period before that? Was less dynamism and change possible back then, or was there plenty potential for change? societies didn't tolerate it as much. Well, I think there were other earlier times when there was creative destruction going on, and I don't want to have it chiseled in, in stone in people's minds that it was this uh, this period that you mentioned uh, uh, from the late 1800s to 1930. I, I borrowed that period from somebody who I thought was authoritative as a kind of a rule of thumb. Uh, uh, Phelps, Nobel Prize winner, has a nice book uh, that has some overlapping interests with mine where he, he identifies that as the main period. And I think he's, he's basically right. There's a nice book by a guy named um, Charles Morris called, I think, The Dawn of Innovation, something like that, mm -hmm. where he looks at the earlier period in the United States before the period I identify. And he finds a lot of innovation and a lot of the, and some of the examples I use in the book are from that earlier period. And uh, I, so I, I, I think it's a matter of more or less, not either or. And I think you can go even further back. You can find uh, creative destruction. You can find significant periods of innovation in other societies earlier. Uh, I think in, in the industrial, uh, the original industrial revolution in England, uh, there was a, a lot of entrepreneurship and what I call it, uh, creative destruction going on. You can even go further back to uh, Florence in the, the period of Brunelleschi uh, and Ghiberte, which I've mentioned briefly in the book, is a, is a period when there was a, a lot of uh, dynamism and vibrancy and creative destruction. 
So uh, it's happened at different at, places. In the past, though, but in the past, it was sort of wasn't sustained. We had Carl Benedict Frey on here last year. And he made the point that good ideas in the past would get quashed by guilds and the government to protect the status quo. And over time, we saw more tolerance and acceptance for creative destruction, particularly by the late 1700s and early 1800s. Is that how you see it? I, I do, and it, it it raises a really important puzzle that I don't uh, have a, a great answer to, which is why at certain times was it allowed to thrive and at others not? This is a big issue that Deirdre McCloskey has uh, tried really hard to answer, and she identifies uh, tolerance of a society in broader respects as being a, a key variable, tolerance and respecting uh, the, the business person, the entrepreneur, dignifying that is the word that she uses. And right. then uh, that, that raises deeper questions, I mean, uh, which is, okay, so what is it that, that brought people to be more tolerant? Why were the Dutch more tolerant than the Spanish during that period of time in the 1400s and such? And, and why did uh, people choose to start respecting and dignifying the entrepreneur? And um, I don't know the answer to that. And I think she struggled with it too. There was a book that annoys me, but in some ways may be right by a guy named Baroni, uh, where he looks at, uh, it's called something like our first revolution. And he looks at uh, the guy who came over from Holland to take over in England and, and is given a lot of credit for the glorious revolution that uh, people think sort of set us on the path to the, the freedom that brought about the prosperity of the United States eventually. And he, his basic bottom line is there were a lot of happy accidents. He said this guy really wasn't fundamentally interested in freedom. He was interested in not having the Catholic French king take over the whole world and impose Catholicism. And he says that a lot of things could have gone wrong. When his fleet left from Holland, they were leaving in the period of the stormy season. If a big storm had come up, which frequently happens, he wouldn't have succeeded in, in making it to England. And... Uh, freedom might not have prospered and we might not have been where we're at now. So I don't know um, if it's by chance, and I'm afraid it might be to some extent. One of the things I remember McCloskey saying back when I was a student of hers a long, long time ago was that it may not matter as much why something originated as what preserves it. And once we look, stumbled into something, if we recognize that it's a wonderful thing, hopefully we have the wisdom and the savvy to find ways to defend it and keep it going. I mean, that is my concern. I'm more than maybe we're not as tolerant of creative destruction as we used to be. There seems to be a lot of concern right now that maybe we've had too much disruption from trade and automation. People look at decimated towns in the Rust Belt and they think we need more stability. And maybe stagnation isn't such a bad thing. I think most people in the United States, at least, and maybe in other parts of the world, too, uh, are, are still embracing innovation in, in their role as consumers, at least. Uh, one of the things that impressed, I remember reading about a couple of biographies of Steve Jobs, and he was on one, a trip with his family somewhere in the Middle East. And one of the things that impressed him were all the young people who were on their iPhones. And he said that that sort of it was an epiphany for him that people everywhere want the same thing, at least in the role as consumers. Uh, there's a guy, a guy named Amar Bidet who's written about more about the United States. He, he's not from the United States originally, but he says one of the things we have here uh, is we have venturesome consumers. 
And he said, you know, we emphasize the entrepreneurs and he thinks that's entirely appropriate. He's written a wonderful book about entrepreneurs, but he says one, one aspect of our success that we don't emphasize enough is that it's not just to have enough to have people creating. You have to have people who consume and are willing to take a chance with what's being created. And we have that here. And I think, uh, so I think as consumers, we're all, uh, most of the, most people are still all in, especially in the United States where there's the rub in the direction that you're suggesting is what about us as workers? And when I first proposed this idea of my book to a, a, a publisher and an academic publisher, he listened with kind of a smirk on his face as I talked about all the wonderful new things from creative destruction. But then he, he when I paused, he said, yes, well, that's all well and good. Most people will accept that. But here is the killer for your idea is that people are, are gonna be worried about the fragility and precariousness of their jobs. And if they're gonna have to pick the consumer goods that you're talking about versus having more fragile jobs, they'll choose to forego the consumer goods and preserve their jobs. So I think a crucial issue for the acceptance of what I'm suggesting is for me to make the case that I do try to make in the book that there is far, far less precariousness for the job market than what people think. And, and that sometimes when they've identified episodes of precariousness, they have, they have been episodes, but they haven't been due. It's a, it's a bum rap to say that those are mainly uh, attributable to creative destruction, to innovation. They're due to other causes, um, one of which is the government policies messing things up in various ways. So I think if I can make my case, and I try to, that the jobs are going to be uh, if they if the fewer people will lose their jobs than than are expected, and that there can be a resiliency built into the economy, and there are actions people can take themselves to be more resilient. That if I can make a good case for that, I think people, most people in the United States, the vast majority, will be all in on this pro, pro on this uh, process of innovative dynamism. One key benefit to innovation is that it drives faster economic growth. Do you feel like you need to make the case that faster economic growth is important over the long term, even though many people may think that our current standard of living is already good enough and we really don't need to focus on growth anymore? Uh, you're making a, a good point, and it's, a, it's an issue I thought about a lot. I, I do think that when people – I don't use I, – I believe in economic growth, and I think it's, it's important for human betterment. It's crucial. But I don't use the phrase as much as some people who generally share my point of view – and the reason is that I think it calls to mind more of the same. And so people think, how many more shoes does Imelda Marcus need? Or how many more shoes do I need? Uh, they or think from the movie it, Wall Street, where Bud Fox asked Gordon Gecko, you know, how many, I think, like, how many yachts can you water ski behind? You already have right, exactly, right. So in my chapter where I'm trying to sell the benefits of uh, innovative dynamism, I don't mainly focus on a graph that shows GDP going up. Because GDP could be thought of, and I think a lot of people think of it as just more of the old, you know, more yachts and more shoes, and we don't need that. What I emphasize are several categories of innovative new goods that previously didn't exist, and I go through and talk about how those really change people's lives in fundamental ways that are important to us. So I talk about air conditioning, and I talk about how old people and sick people died when they didn't have air conditioning in hot parts of the world whereas they live when they have access to air conditioning. I talk about how people are more violent when they live in hot areas and don't have air conditioning, whether it's baseball players throwing beanballs or whether it's uh, uh, drivers of cars getting into accidents because they're angry or, or whatever. I talk about 
um, cures for diseases. That's a particularly relevant one right now. And I talk about how you, many of the new cures that, that helped improve the longevity and reduce the suffering of people were, were achieved through kind of an entrepreneurial process in a similar way to entrepreneurs in producing cars and, and uh, air conditioning. I talk about, I defend cars. I say that what cars did is they allowed us to, to the job market to be bigger. That makes us more resilient if we do leave or lose our job and gives us more choices. It, it makes it safer because uh, uh, if you're getting into a car in a neighborhood you'd rather not be in, that's better than having to wait for a bus in a neighborhood that you'd rather not be in. I talk about light, illumination. I talk about how people's lives were constrained and limited before they uh, had electric lighting, the hours in which they could work, the, the leisure activities that they had. So I try to be concrete in talking about specific big jumps, leaps, breakthroughs that make people's lives better. And I suggest that the process of innovative dynamism allows us to keep what we've achieved in that, but also to continue to advance and come up with new and better in ways that will make people's lives better. Part of what I argue in the, in the book, in the early parts of the book, and my editor said this made it too philosophical. And so he was wanting me to cut it down, but I, part of, part of me is at heart a philosopher. So I, I struggle to have it in, but I, I've made arguments about what it is people want. And I, I sort of, I say there's two levels. One is that they, 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 they need the fundamental inputs to pursue a life plan. That could be a variety of life plans. And so I say health is important, whether you want to write the great novel, uh, uh, whether you want to uh, live a peaceful life on a desert island, there are all kinds of life plans where certain fundamental goods are necessary, like let's say health. But then I say there's another set of life plans that I personally think are more likely to lead to happiness. It's a narrower set, the kind of things that Abraham Maslow identified. And this, these would be, these would be sort of the top of his hierarchy, where he said human beings are most happy if they can, they have the basics, but then if they also can pursue a self-fulfilling, creative. Uh, uh, meaningful life. And I think that the, the basic goods that I emphasize, things like air conditioning, cars, health, I think often you can make good arguments. They serve both at the fundamental level for a huge variety of, of life plans, but then also the more narrow set of plans that I think are more likely to lead to happiness. And I think we need, we need more of that. I, some people, I couldn't believe this, but I argued for greater longevity in one of my seminars once, and I, re, and I had some students who were against it. And uh, and I thought, I thought there's so many more things that you could do that would be exciting and fun and fulfilling. And wouldn't it be nice to have an extra 20 years for each of us? And I, I, I still think that- or, even or, people, or, even, or even just an extra, or even the same lifespan, but those, but those last 20 years maybe be you know, a little bit healthier. Where you abso- know, absolutely. You're, 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 still, you're still sharp, mentally sharp. Uh, you still, you still can uh, exactly. you know, bend over and pick something up yeah. without, you know, clutching your I, back. I didn't say it, but I, I meant I would <laughs> certainly want to say an extra twenty years where you're not in the nursing home, but where you That's can do sure. the things that you want uh, to do that 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 allow you to be a That's like right. as you well, said. One concern of mine, you, you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned the pandemic, is that that will come out on the other side, overly cautious, very risk averse. That you know, we've we you have a lot of money flowing from the Fed and from the federal government to keep companies uh, solvent from going out of business. And I'm wondering if we're on the other side here, if we're not going to have a problem with a less 
risk-taking society, a society less tolerant of creative destruction, and a society where you have, I guess, uh, I guess a zombie economy. Too many zombie companies that should go out of business, but we're not going to let them. Uh, are these crazy concerns of mine, or do you think they have any validity? No, I, I think that they're reasonable concerns, and I don't know how we're going to emerge. I am hopeful that it's at least possible that we can emerge with people feeling strong, more strongly favorably toward entrepreneurship. I think it's partly going to depend on how, how we look at what solves the problem we're facing with COVID-19. And the question is, many people have argued that we're having problems because we don't have enough central planning. And I think a good case can be made, and I've tried to make this in, in a couple of op-eds I've written recently, that the problem is too much central planning, uh, not, not too little, and that we need to rely more on, on the entrepreneurs who are in the trenches on fighting COVID-19. Um, there's, there was a, an expose, I, I would call it, they didn't call it this in the New York Times a week or so ago, about uh, the World Health Organization and how they dragged their feet on admitting that there was substantial symptomless transmission of COVID-19. And they, they didn't just drag their feet for a week or two weeks, they dragged their feet for like four months because there was strong evidence starting the end of January that there was substantial symptomless transmission. And they were sending out directives saying that you, know, you don't have to worry about it, there's not much of that. And that has big implications for what people do in terms of like masks. Masks are much more important if they're symptomless. And masks in terms of everybody wearing masks are much more important if there's substantial symptomless transmission. So this, in effect, they were as close to a central planning organization as we have for this, and they have botched it big time in a way that I think substantially extended the length and severity of this crisis. So I think what we need to do is we need those of us who believe that entrepreneurial innovation is important, need to be looking at what's going on and need to be using our best attention uh, to say, here's what we think has helped solve it. And here's what we think has hurt. And I think it'll come out favorably to entrepreneurs if we do that. But some people would say not everything's the World Health Organization. And they'll point to planners in Beijing who seem to be doing a fantastic job getting China to catch up to the US or even move ahead of us in some sectors. So is there any merit to the central planning model where you pick the companies and sectors of the future and put government on their side? Yeah. Well, I think part of the central planning model, and certainly it was with China, is that they are suppressing the opinions of people who don't agree with what the central planners are saying. And there was the case of that heroic whistleblower uh, in Wuhan, uh, who they actually sent the police to get him to shut up, who was trying to say, hey, we've got a virus here that's a problem. And there are reasonable people who think that, uh, that uh, if he had been allowed to speak, sooner, more widely, and they had allowed that word to get out more, it wouldn't have spread as much, both in, Ch in China itself, but also to other places like us. Now, you're asking the question, though, more broadly about industrial policy. And uh, I think the failures of industrial policy are much, uh, are, are much greater than people understand. And in China itself, um, I try to, I'm not a, a scholar particularly of China, but I try to read up about what's going there, going on there. And it seems to me like they have been propping their economy up for a long while um, with overinvestments in things like real estate. And uh, there's a whole bunch of, of um, not the two or three biggest cities, but the next tier down 
that I, my understanding is have large sections of unoccupied, expensive apartment buildings that people have invested hugely in. I, I think I saw a figure a week or two ago that something about something like 78% of people's assets in China are in real estate, which is at least twice what it is in, in uh, the United States, I think. And uh, it looks like a house of cards that is about is, be, is ready to fall. Now, I know it's been said for a while and it hasn't fallen yet. But I still believe it's going to fall because uh, it seems to me like they're what, what they're doing is they're not they 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 in terms of technology they are catching up some in some areas, but the question is are they do, in a society that suppresses freedom of speech the way that they do, are they going to be able to have the dynamism of the entrepreneur who pushes the frontier, and I I believe that they aren't going to have that. If, if my story about what's behind entrepreneurship is, is at all accurate, then they are suppressing some aspects of that that are crucial. And so they might be able to push to catch up in some areas to cut, like with Huawei, um, how did they achieve what they achieved? There's a, there were some exposés, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, might've been the New York Times, where they go over case after case, after case of, of espionage. They weren't creating new technologies and innovations behind Huawei, they were stealing it from the West. Well, you can do that. You can't, you can't espionage your way to pushing the technological frontier forward because you can't you can't you can't steal what hasn't been invented yet. Absolutely. And so then, when, if they were lucky enough to reach that point, in some areas they may be, then then what? Then then they're they're up against a wall that they either have to free things up or not advance. And to finish up, we're currently in the middle of almost fifty years of relatively weak productivity growth at least compared to what we saw coming out of World War II. What can policymakers do to upgrade the American economy so we can have faster growth and more innovative dynamism? Well, I emphasize uh, two sorts of policies as most important. I emphasize that we need lighter regulation. We have had a growth of something called the precautionary principle, where increasingly you have to prove that what you are, uh, your innovation will not possibly cause any harm. But a, a large number of the great innovations of the past were ones that you didn't know whether there, what harm there might be until you worked out the kinks and you tried it out. And so there's a, there's a nice passage from uh, a book by Cass Sunstein where he lists a whole bunch of important innovations that would never have existed if the precautionary principle had been in place at the time. And so we, you know, we makes you wonder then now that we're increasingly having the precautionary principle, what innovations would exist that we're not allowing ourselves to have because we're enforcing this precautionary principle. So I emphasize less regulations, lighter regulations as one of the key policy uh, directions. If we want more innovation, if we want to have faster growth, if we don't want to have stagnation, another policy emphasis is we need to keep taxes lower. Part of what I argue is that the bigger the breakthrough innovation is, the more that or uh, that people besides the entrepreneur are not going to be able to judge whether it's plausible or not. That only the innovator behind that innovation will know. That means at the early, fragile, precarious stages of a breakthrough innovation, it's going to almost inevitably have to be self-funded. For it to be self-funded, you have to allow the innovator to accumulate and have the funds to self-fund. And what that implies is you have to have a light tax policy to allow them to do that. So I also emphasize low taxation as a way to encourage the self-funding at these early precarious stages. Um, I, there's other factors that matter too. Uh, Peter Thiel says 
entre entrepreneurs need to have more courage. So he, he's emphasizing things that can be done. He thinks people are being too cautious in the projects they undertake and that you ought to change that. <laughs> now, there's not a government. Now, there's not a government policy for that. No, that. Yeah, that's no, that's not a government policy. And I don't emphasize it in my book, but I don't think he's totally wrong. So, you know, there's I guess what I'm saying is there's more than one way to increase um, innovation and entrepreneurship. I'm, I, in my book, emphasize policies and I want the government to do less. And that's what I emphasize. But I'm not saying that Peter Thiel's entirely wrong in saying it's also useful to encourage people to be to take a chance and be entrepreneurs. It's also useful to do what Deirdre McCloskey says and say that what, what one thing we need to do more of is to honor, dignify and praise entrepreneurs. I, I don't do as much of that or as much of the telling people to be courageous as McCloskey and Thiel do, but I'm not saying they're totally wrong. I think there's something to what they say, but I'm emphasizing that the government could get out of the way more and that would help a lot. And so I think there's, you know, there's more than one way to contribute to making innovative dynamism uh, uh, prosper again and to make uh, human betterment move forward faster again. My guest today is Arthur Diamond. Professor Diamond, thanks for coming on the podcast. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.